welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 37th episode, I'll be talking to Melissa Bright about forbidden media and paths to the devil. Along the way, we'll discuss the gory roots of fairy tales, the joy of squeezing an entire tube of toothpaste down the sink, and how chain pizza restaurants can be a gateway to secular music. We'll finish the show with a signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. So, Melissa, for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake? My name is Melissa Bright. I'm a beautiful and unique snowflake. I can't even say it. Because when I was a kid, Mr. Rogers told me I was. Aww. He said, you are the only one like you. And that's true. That's why. That's the first Mr. Rogers reference we've had on the show. And I hope it won't be the last. I find that so amazing because he was, I mean, you want to talk about formative media. Literally, he was the man, and I mean this both literally and figuratively, who taught me how to spell friend. Aww. He had a song where he spelled out, if this was actually the same song, where he says, you are the only one like you, like you, my friend, you're special to me. And at the very end, he says, F-R-I-E-N-D special. And that is literally how I learned how to spell friend. But also his show, like was I actually get in tears talking about him because he was the kindest man on the planet. And he taught me like true deep lessons about what it meant to be a friend and what it meant to be kind. And I know there are other people out there who had that same experience. So I find it amazing that I'm the first person to mention him. Maybe it's just because I'm like so passionate about Mr. Rogers. No, no. The thing is, we've talked about Sesame Street and the Muppets are very formative, both in Sesame Street and the Muppet Show and Muppet Babies and stuff. But I don't know why Mr. Rogers has never come up, nor has his north of the border Canadian counterpart, Mr. Dressup, who is super formative to me. Who I just found out about recently, and I find it so amazing that there was this whole like Canadian version of Mr. Rogers out there that I didn't even know about. And I, and I find that especially interesting because, so I was born in 1978. So when I was kind of getting to TV watching age was the dawn of Nickelodeon, which was originally, I think, called the Pinwheel Network or something like that in Canada. And it came to the U.S. and we had cable for a weirdly short period of time. But during that time, we got Nickelodeon. So I was introduced for the first time to Canada and all these Canadian shows. You know, we were watching Nickelodeon in sort of in its inception. It was originally this very Canadian cable or I think it was I don't even know if it was cable in Canada, but it was on in the U.S. It was on cable and it was this very Canadian network. So it had all these Canadian shows and it sort of introduced me not just to Canadian TV, but the the very concept of Canada. And I find it really interesting that Mr. Dressup wasn't on Nickelodeon, as far as I know, at all. I think Mr. Dressup was on, I'm trying to remember again, I didn't pay much attention to the actual channels. I think Mr. Dressup was actually on CBC, which was the Canadian Broadcasting Network. Okay. Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I just realized I, I gave the wrong acronym for it. And so that's where a lot of that Canadian content that is so remembered by people ended up. Because like we have the equivalent here in Australia, which is the ABC. So it's like the BBC in the UK. Okay. But yeah, when it came to Mr. Dressup, like it's one of those things where 
it almost wasn't discussed very much because literally every child I knew would watch Mr. Dress Up. And it was up there with Fred Penner being the Canadian version of Raffi and having his own series of songs. And you don't realize that people don't know it until you start singing the song about sandwiches as you're making a sandwich. And people (laughs) in Australia just stare at you. Isn't that interesting? That just sort of makes me think about one of the interesting things about moving somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And I I say somewhere else, think of it as a sort of C.S. Lewis in, you know, initial cat somewhere else, where you have all of these things that you grew up with, and you find yourself making references, and people just stare at you like, what planet are you from? What, (laughs) What are these words you're saying? I didn't really understand to the extent that I do now what my husband went through coming to America, where he started talking about something, and I was like, I don't know what that is. But now, you know, even just moving to New York, it's not another country from Texas, but it might as well be. I'll make references that are very Texan or even more specifically Houstonian in nature. And people go, I don't know what that is. Having those regional touchstones is something that it comes into play a lot, especially on the kid level, because your reference pools are usually so small. Even with stuff like, you know, food. I spoke to former guest Matt Wilson about him being from North Carolina and getting into strong arguments in Texas about what is or is not barbecue. Mm, yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> All right, well, we've touched on it a little bit, so let's get into that. So whereabouts did you grow up? I grew up in Houston, in Texas. Houston is interesting in that it's Texas, but it's not the South. I think a lot of people make the mistake of Texas being the South and really only a very small section of it is the south and you have some parts of it that are more southwest houston is really more i guess generally gulf coast okay so you get a lot of different types of people in houston but having said that i actually grew up in a very enclosed waspy suburb experience so it's interesting saying i'm from houston i have this really multicultural experience but that actually didn't start until later on growing up it was very we were very surrounded by white middle class protestants and that was it okay what sort of kid were you in this in this uh, enclave let's say i was i am told and i want to sound you know like i'm tooting my own horn but i'm told i was a very bright child i was very introverted very silly i have a brother who is three years younger than me so we grew up pretty close playing a lot together and we had a very rich fantasy life lots of laughter in our family so you know that was very much encouraged that kind of silliness and i was a voracious reader and i still am okay and what what sort of things were making it onto your nightstand or your reading shelf and this is where we sort of get into i guess the theme is i wanted to read pretty much anything but what really sparked my interest were stories about things that were not my experience. So people that were different than me, people who went to different schools than me. So I went to a private Christian school literally my entire school career, except for like I think a summer at a community college taking a Spanish class. Everything else from elementary school all the way through university was a private Christian school. So any stories that were about kids that went to public school, kids that listened to different types of music, kids that were different religion, all the way to stories that take place in other worlds or people who were mean or you know anything that was different than my very specific upbringing were really interesting to me. Even stories, I remember hoarding any book that had to do with winter because growing up in Houston, it's it sounds sad to say we don't have winter in Houston. And, you know, you get most of the year is very hot and humid. You get maybe a couple of weeks in the summer 
even more so now than when I was a kid, where it's maybe cool outside. <laughs> you don't really get snow. You don't get cold weather. You don't have heavy coats. I didn't own a heavy sweater until I moved to New York. So <laughs> any stories about winter to me were so fascinating. And that is what I would really sort of keep close to me is anything that was different. And this is something where I think I'm in a unique position to ask someone who might have an idea. When I first moved to Australia, I found the seasonal changes to be so incremental that I didn't even notice them. I mean, I do now. I said in the pre-show, I'm sitting here wrapped up in a blanket because it's cold in my house now. But when I first arrived, I actually had trouble coming, coming from Canada and arriving in Sydney. I had trouble keeping track of the years that had passed because it seemed like one long endless summer. So did you, was that just me or, or did you find, because I know you now live in New York, so did you find that shift to be shocking or what do you think? It's very shocking. And I think for me, it's sort of the opposite because I went from one long endless summer to having very defined seasons. And for me, the seasons are, it's so weird having, like I told you, the, the, I don't understand spring at all. This whole thing of, you know, there are things blooming outside, but yet it's still cold. And then suddenly it's warm and then it's cold again. I just don't even know what's going on. <laughs> and then having our first winter here, we actually had a blizzard, which was so exciting for me. Having grown up, never having a winter and fantasizing about winter, probably almost to the point of unhealthiness. <laughs> ha suddenly having all of the winter in one day, I was over the moon. But there's a lot to get used to that you don't think about, like how much heavier winter clothing is or how many layers you're going to have to take off once you get to the office, that kind of thing, or having to buy clothes that you never had any use for before, like winter boots. Yeah, it's a whole different paradigm. And it takes getting used to in ways that you never expected. It's, it's something like, I, I can't remember who said it. I remember reading it in a book about how people who live in California never have the idea of a winter car, as in a car you have to plug in overnight so it doesn't freeze. Yeah. And a car you have to sit running in the driveway for 10 minutes so it warms up. A car with a paint job that you don't care if it gets sprayed salt up to its windows. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, the kind of thing where it's like, oh, it's not a very nice car, but it's a good winter car. It gets me through. It'll get me out of the ice. I hear relatives say stuff like that. I'm like, these are just words. I don't know what this <laughs> means. And I remember, I remember reading for the first time The Chronicles of Narnia, which I of course, devoured to the point of almost memorizing them all. And I remember when they first said that in Narnia, it's always winter and never Christmas. Christmas. Yeah. I remember thinking as a child, that'd be okay. I'd be okay with that. Um, <laughs> I've never had a winter. I've had lots of Christmases. I will trade you. Oh, wow. I now understand it having actually been to the UK and understanding just how just sort of chilly and damp it is most of the year and just how tired people get of it being cold and wet and just, ugh, come on, can we please have some warm weather? I understand it now. But as a kid, I remember just thinking, this is crazy talk. Who would care about this? <laughs> I would trade you all of my Christmas for the rest of my life to have some snow. As, as you say that, I'm thinking back to like Canadian winters and I'm like, no, see, November, December is like that early winter where it's like, oh, it's starting to get colder and you got to wear a sweater as well as a jacket and sometimes you'll get like an early snowfall and that's pretty and nice and it's that late january mid-february slog yes where it's like it's cold and slushy and everything sucks and sand trucks and assault trucks have been by and so even walking to school is not nice because it's that that sort of brown slush in the gutters yeah and i'm like yeah I'll, yes. I'll skip that i'll keep the winter before christmas that's the good one i think i understand i understand it finally this year it's been so gray 
constantly, like to a level that we didn't have last winter, which was our first winter here. It's been so great. And I finally am starting to understand why people are just over winter by February. It's not even so much, I think, the snow. It's just the endlessness of it all. It's just like this winter just keeps marching on just in this dreary drudgery. And you just want a little sun. Coming from a land of basically endless sun, I never really got that. But this was the first year that I actually experienced seasonal affective disorder in winter instead of in the summer. Oh, wow. And I get it. I get it now. I think I'm starting to understand, like, why you would want that break. Because I'm over it. I'm ready for the sun. And this is a complete tangent. And so I apologize. But it was something that I realized about three years ago. I went back to Canada for my mom's wedding. Uh, She got married to her longtime partner. And they live in Winnipeg, which is about the ass end of the world when it comes to Canada (laughs) in that it is it is one of the coldest places. Like, again, growing up in Canada until I was 20, I have never been as cold as when I went to Winnipeg. Like looking around at the snow and the temperature and just how inhospitable it was. Like going from the car to the store was the coldest I'd ever been. And that, and that counts like Northern Ontario. That counts New Brunswick. That counts everywhere. And just like, the thought that popped into my head is how do people date in, in this? Like how can you yeah. be remotely cool turning up someplace and taking off four layers and your face is bright red and your nose is running and your hair's all crazy because you had a, a, a toucan or, or a beanie or a wool hat or whatever you want to call it. And I'm just like, how did the people do it? You know, bless them for having kids at all. It's amazing what happens. <laughs> you know, I always wondered as a kid, you know, when I started, you know, finding about it, about how Texas was settled and then eventually, you know, how it was acquired by the United States. I always wondered, how did people ever settle this area? It's so hot and humid. There was no air conditioning. Who in their right mind? And I always had to think, they must have just gotten this far and thought, you know what, screw it. We can't turn around now. And we're here and it's too late. We're just here. We just have to stay. Because nobody in their right mind would go to a place like that with no air conditioning and go, no, this seems good. Let's just stay here. This is perfect. You know, I have to think it was just, we're here. There's nothing we can do about it. But then I wonder, like, why would the United States want Texas? Like, did they ever go there and think, oh, this is perfect. We should add this to our roster of states. Like, why not just let Mexico have it? It's got thorns. It's got cactuses. It's got poisonous lizards. Yeah. (laughs) Lizards that shoot blood out of their eyes. It's home. <laughs> I love Houston. Houston, the, the people are amazing. The food is amazing. The city is amazing. But it's a swamp. It's a <laughs> subtropical climate, and it's a swamp. And, you know, it's obviously, it's very, you know, full of concrete and buildings and things now. But, you know, when, when people first got there, it's a swamp. <laughs> and I understand why the Allen brothers would have to basically swindle people to come. Because... Nobody in their right mind would go there and think, this is exactly what I wanted and want to stay. <laughs> and there's a, a long and complicated anecdote that an Australian comedian named Adam Hills tells, which is where he talks about the settlement of Australia by white settlers, or invasion, if you want to be correct about it. Mm-hmm. And they say, like, the Dutch arrived and looked around and went, well, this is shit. I'm not staying. And, they <laughs> left. and the French arrived and they said, I agree with the Dutch. This is shit. And then the English arrived and went, well, yes, it's shit, but if we go up a little ways, it might be a tiny bit nicer. And they were <laughs> exactly correct in the way that it was just a tiny bit nicer. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's all about where you're coming from. Because maybe, you know, maybe it's an improvement from where you're from. You know, maybe your life in wherever you were from was terrible. And, you know, maybe the weather was nice there, but everybody hated you or you were basically a slave. And maybe you wanted something different. So, you know, from that perspective, I can kind of see. But, yeah... 
as a kid, it wasn't terribly consoling to think, you know, there was a reason people were here. I just wanted some winter, damn it. It's funny that you mentioned Narnia because I would imagine, like, with the, I know it's not, it's, it's Lewis and, and other people would refer to it as applicability, but really it's allegory. Come on, guys. So with sort of the sort of heavy Christian allegory in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the other books, and especially the later books, was that on the approved reading list? Because it Oh, was, absolutely. I suppose, it, yeah. The metric there was... He's a Christian author. That got him in right away. The fact that it was a very blatant allegory for Jesus was a bonus. I say that because Lord of the Rings was also on the approved list. Lord of the Rings, very famously, not an allegory. And Tolkien very specifically said, this is not an allegory for anything. It's just a story. And he was very annoyed with Lewis for his blatant allegorical story. Like, he didn't think that that was a thing that Lewis should have done, like made it so obvious that this is Jesus and he's a lion. But because Tolkien was, I guess more specifically, he was a Catholic, he was sort of on the approved list, even if The Lord of the Rings was not a Christian allegory. But certainly Narnia being a Christian allegory and being by a Christian author, it was not only approved, it was sort of celebrated. And I remember watching, even before I read the books, one of my aunts showing me the very early cartoon of I think from the 1970s of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and saying, you should read these books because, you know, we read these books and they're really good. And I remember reading them and it was like a light turned on in this weird part of my brain that seeks out other worlds or, or worlds that are kind of like our own, but there's something different. And that I think is has been a theme for me throughout my life is seeking out the stories that are just a bit different than what I experience, whether that's in a fantastical way, or maybe it's just somebody has a different life than me. And that's interesting to me. But yeah, absolutely. They're, they were, I don't want to say pushed on me because I was certainly a willing recipient, but they were, it was very much my family handing me these books and saying, you should read these. Okay. So what other things were on the list of your, the other worlds that got your attention? The way to lay this out is to explain probably how my family was. In the formative years of my life, in the 80s, let's say, my family was very evangelical Christian, very strict in what we were allowed to consume. I don't know if you had this in Canada, but in the United States in the 80s, in the Christian world, there was a paranoia of anything that could possibly be construed as satanic. So anything that had magic in it could lead you to Satan. And I mean that in a very literal way. Like they believe that Satan was a very real person and that he was literally interfering in all of our lives and trying to lead us down the path of evil and darkness. This, this is the chick track stuff, right? Like, yes, you know, don't play yes. Dungeons and Dragons. It will lead you to the devil. Absolutely. Which let's put a pin on the Dungeons and Dragons. But okay. so anything that had any kind of magic in it, was absolutely under the, the highest scrutiny, which is really unfortunate for a kid that's very naturally drawn to fantasy. So Narnia was okay. Lord of the Rings I discovered sort of later in my early teen years, but that was also okay. But anything that had magic in it that wasn't by a Christian author was off the table. Absolutely would lead you to Satan. That includes weirdly more than just overt fantasy, which led me to very quickly learned that I should not talk about the books I was reading with my family. What was okay, weirdly, was fairy tales. Anything that's sort of in encompassed in like this fairy tale bucket. So like Cinderella, for example, that, you know, very obviously sort of old fairy tale stuff that had magic in it was okay. But 
this is actually one of my things that I discussed with my parents later on in life. My grandma had a series of books that were meant for young readers. So one of them was a book of fairy tales. One of them was a book of stories from around the world. One of them was a book of sort of abridged versions of classic novels. When we would go to visit, I would read them. And my fa- the fairy tale one was my absolute favorite. And if you asked me today, if your apartment was on fire and your husband and your cats were safe, what would you want to save the most? I would say that fairy tale volume, which I got when my grandma died. And it had all of the original sort of very violent and gory versions of the fairy tales that we know today. So for example, Cinderella, the version that I have in this volume, the stepsisters start cutting off bits of their feet to fit into the slipper. Ah, yes. I still remember the first time I heard about that. I was just like, wait, wait, what? Really? It's so fantastic. And my very favorite one was called The Goose Girl, ends up with the villain of the story being thrown naked into a nail-studded casket and dragged to her death by horses. I remember, I mean, I was a very small child when I read that the first time. And I remember thinking, this is fantastic. (laughs) I've never read anything like this before. And then very quickly realizing, I can never tell anything. (laughs) And I'll tell you what came on the heels of that. I got, and this is, again, my grandmother. So my, my grandparents lived in Arkansas, so we would go visit them once or twice a year. And my grandma would take me to the library in her town that she lived in. I found this book named Horrible Hepzibah. And it was all about this girl who was bad. She was a bad girl and she loved it. And she didn't apologize for it. She was just so mean. And there was never any like redemptive arc that I can recall in the story. It was just about this bad girl. And I was a very good girl. I was very concerned with following the rules and don't get in trouble. Like getting in trouble was my worst fear. And I read this and I loved it. I was like, this girl, man, I wish I was as brave as her. My mother found out about it and forbade me to read it. Oh, no. And this was the very first banning that I can remember. And I want to put a little footnote in here to say that my parents are wonderful people. They're very loving, but they were very young parents. And they very quickly succumbed to what they considered to be the moral authority of the day. And their very specific views on child rearing and their very specific views on what is evil and satanic and what you shouldn't have your children consume. So they were doing this with the best of intentions. And now my mother will say, I can't believe I banned you from reading that book. I've been trying to find it. It's out of print and it's like $250 for me to buy this book for you. But I feel really bad that I told you not to read it. And because me, you know, I'm being a book lover, I'm very anti-banning books. I believe that there's conversations that you can have with children about, you know, what's good behavior and what's appropriate. But like banning books is such a bad message to send. And I remember thinking, I can't believe my mother like is forbidding me from reading. This is a new thing. And so when I started reading those fairy tales, and I realized my mother will not approve of this violence at all. I can't ever tell her. That started a very long trend of me not talking about books and other things that I was consuming that I knew she would not approve of. But I would say in general, fairy tales were also, you know, definitely allowed with that caveat that there were definitely things in those fairy tales that were not magic, but that were definitely on the banned list. I was going to say, it's funny where it's like you're almost benefiting from the boulderization of fairy tales where they're seen as safe and they're seen as clean. In, in situations like that, when, you know, as you were clearly finding out, the roots of them were very, very not. 
Oh, absolutely. They were so violent. And, you know, I remember you reading them as a kid, you know, growing up in this very sanitized life. And I'm not in any way saying, oh, I wish my life were more violent because that would make me a better person. Absolutely not. But I remember reading these and thinking, this makes them seem more real. Like, just having this fairy godmother, okay, that's fine. But having real stakes for me, I think, made it just so much more tangible like I felt like it was more in the story like the villains seemed like actual villains versus okay they're kind of bad and they're thwarting me from what I want to do no these were people that really wanted to hurt somebody and when they had consequences they were real consequences and for me that just made it so much more colorful yeah I'm gonna crib a line from Terry Pratchett that I've used a lot which is where fairy tales don't show you that there are no monsters under the bed. They show you that there are monsters, but that they can be defeated. Absolutely. It's one of my favorite quotes. Yes. It's, yeah, it's so appropriate. Oh, and by the way, I looked up Horrible Hepzibah, and it may have my favorite tagline. <laughs> Unlike the summary on, like, worldcat.org, it just says, mm-hmm. relates the adventures of a terrible little girl who grew up to be happily mean. And I'm like, yes. Same. Same. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think it's great. So there were the fairy tales. And so from there, where did you go? Well, I read a lot of Beverly Cleary. I think that was probably the next step for me. You know, you're thinking about a kid who's like seven or eight. What are you going to read next in the 80s? Beverly Cleary, out the wazoo. I read almost every book that she wrote. And I was obsessed with Ramona. And I think the reason that I love those books so much, again, was that difference She went to a public school. She was from a family that didn't have a lot of money, which our family was kind of pretty well off. You know, my dad made enough money that my mom didn't have to work. She was from a family that when she squeezed that toothpaste all into the sink, just because it felt glorious to squeeze the toothpaste, she had to then put it in a bag and use it because they were not going to waste the money to buy extra toothpaste or they couldn't afford disposable diapers when they had the baby. And for me, that was like, I don't know that I know anybody like this. This is really interesting. But then also, you know, I also recognized a lot of myself in Ramona. Like, she wanted to try stuff just because it felt good. Or she wanted to try to get her dad, you know, my dad didn't smoke. But, you know, the the whole idea of her trying to get her dad to quit smoking. She wanted to make people's lives better. Or, you know, she was wearing something that was really itchy. And I also was wearing something that was really (laughs) itchy. So for me, it was great reading about a person that was enough like me that I could relate to her. But also had a different life. And I also kind of wanted an older sibling too. So for me, the experience of her having Beezus as an older sibling, there was something that I didn't have. And I was like, oh, what must that be like? My favorite though, Beverly Cleary's was Mitch and Amy because she, um, Amy had a twin brother. And I thought, oh, now that would be something, having somebody that was the same age as me that was my brother. Because I had a cousin who was about a month older than me, but having a brother that was the exact same age as me, that that would be interesting. So I was always kind of drawn to that. I don't, I don't think I'm familiar with Mitch and Amy. Which one was that? Well, apart from that, they were twins. But It was unrelated to the whole Ramona, Beezus, Henry kind of world. Um, it was just a one-off called Mitch and Amy. And it was, you know, Amy was sort of the more, I don't want to say the smarter, but the more successful in school of the twins. And so, you know, they would sort of bicker with each other about everything, but specifically about, you know, he would spell a word wrong and she would tease him. And the story was sort of generally, you saw your brother and in the end, you defend him from people who want to pick on him is just sort of like you know this is my tribe you know you i can pick on it but you're not allowed to exactly i loved it i loved her one-offs she had another one i loved called emily's runaway imagination which was set in sort of the i think it was set in the 30s and it was just this kid in the 30s and you know experiencing an automobile for the first time and that kind of thing was so cool 
I realized later in life that I had amalgamated a lot of the a lot of Judy Bloom's other books with Beverly Cleary's books, and realizing yeah. that oh wait no they're actually separate they don't actually all cross over because I had it in my head yes. there was one big cinematic universe of Apple paperbacks. Well, they're sort of in the same world, you know. There's they're all kind of still about kids having normal lives and going through very normal things. The one Judy Bloom that I found out about as an adult, and I keep thinking, oh, I'm so glad nobody else knew about that. Was Dina? I think it's called, where it's basically about a, an adolescent who discovers her body and sort of discusses masturbation. I just remember thinking to myself when I found out about that. I'm really glad that my mother didn't know about this because I would have been banned from all Judy Bloom books. And I really liked Judy Bloom. She had a really great voice and it was a very relatable voice. Yeah. So she was definitely in the roster. Yeah, see, I had my progressive second wave feminist mother who would give me books like Forever and Tiger Eyes and then again, maybe I won't, when I was like 10. So... Yeah, yeah. I, I I was on the other side of that where I was reading it going, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't be reading these. Yeah, my family was very concerned with what was age appropriate for me. So when I was a kid, I read a lot of I, le- I read a lot of things that my mom read because she knew they were safe. Like so, like Bobsy Twins and Nancy Drew and some Hardy Boys. Speaking of incredibly small reference pools, when I refer to see people dressing alike, something that came from my dad is like, look at you two, you're the Bobsy Twins today, and just getting <laughs> looks from people and like no idea what I'm talking about. I had so many of those books. Between Bobsy Twins and Nancy Drew, I had like half a bookshelf. I had more books than anybody I knew in school. And a good deal of those were Bobsy Twins and Nancy Drew. I also read pretty much everything that Ellen Montgomery wrote. Obviously, all of the Anne of Green Gables series... All of the Emily books, and speaking of not telling my mother about things, that was another one. The Emily books, I think, are actually better than the Anne books. There's only three of them. It's Emily of New Moon, Emily Climbs, and Emily's Quest. And it's about basically a girl who's orphaned. And, you know, there's a lot of orphaning in Ellen Montgomery's books. And she goes to live with some relatives that she didn't know. And they're all sort of very stuck-up Prince Edward Island clannish, you know, people from the turn of the century. And she sort of revolutionizes their life. And she wants to be a writer. So very similar themes. The difference is Emily has a sixth sense. Ooh. And it's not very in your face. It's only, it only happens a couple of times. There are a couple of times where either she has prophetic dreams or she almost is possessed by an ancestor in a way that it sounds terrible, but it actually is very effective in the scenes that it happens. And I remember reading those and also thinking, I can't tell anybody about this <laughs> because they will take these books away from me. When I started talking about this theme, this is sort of a pervasive thought that I had throughout my growing up years is I can't ever tell anybody about this because they will take it away from me. That's a really fucked up thing for a kid to say. But, you know, it's true. Like, I remember reading that for the first time and going, this is amazing. This makes these books like on another level from the Anne books. But also, I can never tell anybody about this yeah. because... Possessions and prophecy... Yeah, I think that wouldn't fly. The thing that makes them great are the things that will make them disappear from my life. And it's funny that, well, not funny at all, actually. It's it's interesting that you typify it as not just that you would get in trouble for reading something the way you might if you took like an adult book off the shelf. It's like, oh no, that has sex and violence. You shouldn't be reading that. You're in trouble. But instead it's that this thing that you like will be removed. And that's a very specific and, and quite quite a deep fear. When you think about it. Yeah, it is. And, and I remember there's this very strong feeling of panic whenever it would come up. So it happened a lot more 
strongly with TV than it did with books because books, it was sort of a private panic. You know, nobody can see what you're reading. But with TV, you're all sitting in a room. Everybody can see it. And I remember when we were watching Star Trek The Next Generation, you know, we were a little bit older in the 90s. And there was an episode where they go on some sort of wacky intergalactic scavenger hunt. And it ends up being like they all collect this DNA from the first humanoid. And they talked about how, you know, we all sort of evolved from this early humanoid. And that brief mention of evolution sent me into an enormous panic. Because by that point, I was very attached to Star Trek. My love of sci-fi had been completely awoken. And I remember thinking, oh my god, they talked about evolution. We're not going to be allowed to watch this anymore. And just that that sheer pain. And thankfully, it wasn't. They kind of like, you know, she complained about it a little bit and then let it slide. But I just remember that just thrill of panic going through me like, oh god, this is it. Yeah, it was a very sort of visceral reaction to this fear that something really wonderful would be taken away from me just because there was something that was what my brother and I called bad. And we, I remember having lots of conversations as a kid about this is bad. We had a Nintendo like many kids in the 80s. And when Super Mario Brothers 2 came out, we played it for a while and I loved it. It was still my favorite one of all of the Super Mario Brothers games. And my mom started reading the manual who reads the manual for a video game? But she started reading the little booklet that came with it that explained what all the different characters were. And in Super Mario Brothers 2, there's there's a little, like, it's called, like, the dream machine or something. And it basically looks like a little film camera on wheels mm-hmm. that you can, you know, there's a little guy on there you can jump and throw off the guy and then sort of ride across the screen. And in the booklet, it described it as a machine that would give you bad dreams. And she read that and she said, this sounds evil to me. We're not going to play this anymore. And she threw it away. Oh, no. I went in a very rare show of defiance. Very rare. I went and fished it out of the trash and put it back in to play it like one last time before the trash got taken out. And she caught me. Oh, no. And took it away again. And said, we're not playing this. This is evil. It was so traumatic. And that was, again, reinforcing this whole this is, you know, we can't play this because this is bad. And I remember in my brain going, but, but it's not. But I was so afraid of getting in trouble. And I was not one of those kids, you know, I, I always admire people who have the natural courage to go, no, it's not bad. This is wrong. This is throwing this out is wrong. Because to me, I was just, I was so scared. And I was like, I, I but this seems wrong to me. And, you know, my brother, bless his heart, actually was one of those people who stood up because I remember in the 90s when we were really into DuckTales and Magic of a Spell came on. Oh, boy. She was like the, the witch. Again, that panic of my, my mom came in. She was like, um, excuse me, what? There's magic in this show? Oh, no. My brother, and I didn't know she even find this out until fairly recently. I was talking to him about it. And he said, I actually went to my best friend to try to craft out an argument. And I like went and made a case to our parents of why we should still watch this show because it has good morals and all these things. And I was like, oh, wow, you did that? Because I would have been <laughs> terrified to do that. And we actually were allowed to continue watching Tales because he went and made a case for it, even though there was magic in it. You know, unlike other things that we weren't allowed to watch. I know it, it was probably just a kid argument, but I'm picturing him with suspenders and like, you know, <laughs> well, I may be just a s- simple country DuckTales watcher. Yes. But I do yes. believe. <laughs> and pointing yes. at a clipboard. With his, he would have had like a little bow tie oh, or totally. something. Oh, totally. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, he was he was a lot less scared of being in trouble than I was. So bless him for that, because DuckTales was very important to us at the time. But, you know, there were a lot of things that we weren't allowed to watch, you know, like Smurfs and He-Man and, you know, those really great early 80s cartoons because they had magic in them. So for them to just throw magic at a spell in the middle of this show that we were already invested in was it was rough, man. So I'm just thinking I would have argued, well, magic at a spell is clearly showed to be a villain. She's a bad guy. Yeah. And you would think. Although then again. You but that, I mean, that was anything. That was the thing in the 80s in the evangelical world. Anything that had magic in it, even if it was shown to be bad, was still a potential way to lead your kids to Satan. And it was weird because in the 80s, it was very, you know, blatant Satanism. You know, there was all this sort of, they call it the satanic panic about only oh, these satanic rituals will lead your children to be abused and lead them into, you know, they'll be hurt and killed or, or led to Satan and they'll become Satanists and be, be doing all these spells on their own. And then in the 90s, it sort of morphed into the sphere of new age. So like on top of anything that was blatantly Satanist, you'd also have anything that could be considered new age was also evil. So, you know, another one I discovered in my, you know, 11 to 13 years was A Wrinkle in Time and those books. And I still to this day, absolutely some of my favorites. And I remember one of my aunts saying, oh, well, you know, she's really new age. And having that same panic of, oh, God, please don't say that out loud. Please don't take these away from me. Because those were, in other words, they were, the worlds were so fantastic and different. And I don't want to say this and mean this in a bad way, but just wrong. Like any story where there's like, this is our world, but it's also really wrong. There's something really wrong with it. Even especially the Swifty Chelsea Planet was the last one in the series. And it was the one where Charles Wallace sort of kind of goes back in time and goes within people in these time periods to try to stop some sort of oncoming apocalypse. It's like our world, but something is just very deeply wrong about it. And especially it's at certain points in the story, the wrongness sort of gets enhanced. And for me, just, I was so deeply invested in a way that I wasn't in, you know, these normal, pretty normal books that I loved, Wrinkle in Time books for me, just, I was so connected to them. And just this idea that they could be taken away from me because they're new age, which is a very flippant way of, of putting it because it's not true for one thing, but also this, this, the specter of new age, it was very flimsy, you know, like what does new age mean? Come on. We're not worshiping crystals. We're not, you know, communing with past lives and yeah yeah i mean it was it was to the extreme that even like yoga was seen as something that was evil because it would open you up to evil spirits because hey the big scary is always the eastern mysticism yes yes exactly and you could you could apply that to literally anything but it was a real enough paranoia that it was still really terrifying yeah i'm gonna take a slight tangent in that first off if listeners haven't checked it out there's a really excellent comic book adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time, which has art by Hope Larson. You should seek it out if you haven't found it. It's really, really good. But I actually had a conversation with Hope Larson on Twitter because though I knew of him, it was one of those books that it was always you know, on the reading table in my third grade class and saying, oh, you could borrow this if you want to. But I was reading other things. What I did do, and the thing is, I've mentioned it on the show before, but my mother became a United Church minister when I was about 10. She studied at McGill to, to get her degree and then became a minister. And luckily for me, the, both my mother and the United Church are very open and they're very inclusive. And like my mom was doing civil ceremonies for same-sex couples and changing all of the pronouns about God to a, a gender and things like that. So it was 
frankly, I'm going to say this gently, it didn't mess me up too badly. But I remember being at a church bazaar and looking at the book table because I, like you as a kid, was a voracious reader. And I found a book which had this golden angelic male figure picking up two boys and flying away with them from a wave. And... Oh, was it, was it, um... It was Many Waters by Madeline Lego. Uh, yes. Oh, I loved that one. And I had no idea that it was a Wrinkle in Time book. All I knew was I looked at it and it's like, oh, they go back to biblical times and meet Noah. Mm-hmm, the twins. Yeah. And I remembered looking at it and thinking, okay, I mean, the cover almost looks like a romance novel. I'm like, is this going to be okay if it I does. ask to buy this? that it's got this incredibly muscular golden man on it. But I'm looking on the back, and I'm like, I pro- could probably swing this. You know, it, it is a religious thing. It's probably why it's okay to be sold at the church bazaar. And the thing is, that's a great book. Like, it's a really good it's book. It's so good. It is so good. And it's it's kind of nice because it's Meg and Charles Wallace are sort of the main characters of, in, of the other books. But it's nice for Sandy and Dennis, who sort of just briefly appear in most of the stories, to kind of have their own day and have this very time travely, which I'll say I am an enormous sucker for <laughs> any time travel story. I don't care how terrible it is. And I'll put a pin in that because I want to come back to that. But... I loved this world that I always heard about in Bible stories, but they made it real and they made it interesting in a way that I'm sorry, mom, the Bible never did. Yeah, there were mammoths and there were Nephilim as fallen angels and, yes. uh, you know, r- realistic scenes of birth. Go figure. And, and also the yes. fact that both Sandy and Dennis are throughout it saying we're not the special ones. Meg and Charles Wallace are the yep. special ones. We're the ordinary ones. Yep, they were the normal kids in a family of extraordinary people. And the idea of them finding their own particular ways to be special and to be worthy in this new world was actually pretty yes. good. Yes. Oh, so fan. I just, I love all of those books, but I did, at at especially at the time, have a very particular attachment to Many Waters because it was very different, but it was, you know, it's nice to see these side characters have their own story and... That was so great. And also a deeply researched story in that I've answered many Jeopardy questions about Noah's family thanks to that book. <laughs> because of that, yes. And also I've, I've you know, read a lot of things like Hellblazer comics and, and Sandman comics where they talk about fallen angels and they list off names. I know, I know them all because they were all in many waters. Yep, yep. Now, I am mindful of the time, but there were two things you said you wanted to put a pin in. There was Dungeons & Dragons or there was time travel stories. I'm going to say let's pick one. So what do what... you Okay, let's pick the time travel stories because I should have a really great story about that. So the time travel thing, I you know, I, I learned from a very early age that time travel was something that was always going to be of interest to me. And I don't care how terrible the story is, if it's about time travel and the, the time travel bits are interesting, then I am into it. Um, and I remember, you know, reading some really interesting stories from, again, my my grandparents' hometown library. There were two books, and I, I've been trying to find them for years because I can't remember the name, but there one told from the view of a bunch of kids that traveled forward in time to, you know, there was some huge apocalypse, we have no technology, and it's told from their perspective. The other book was told from the perspective of the people who were living at the time and the story of the actual apocalypse and why they had no technology. And then all of a sudden these time travelers show up. And I just remember that was, oh, that was my thing. My mom had a rule. And I say my mom, you know, my probably was an agreed upon rule, but my mom was the one who always 
lay down these rules and enforce them that we were not allowed to watch PG-13 movies. Okay. I was allowed to watch PG-13 movies until I was in college, really. Let's be realistic. I had a friend in junior high who she was kind of the bad girl. And she was a bad girl in the way that Tammy from Bob's Burgers was the bad girl, where she kind of wanted to be the bad girl. Well, she wasn't really that bad. She found out about all these restrictions in my life. I wasn't allowed to listen to secular music. I wasn't allowed to watch PG-13 movies. And she was like, I am going to turn this girl. I'm going to introduce her to all of this secular music and sneak in a PG-13 movie. So I went over to her house one day. And I was very, again, very afraid of getting in trouble. She immediately puts on Gloria Estefan, which... (laughs) I never, I'd never heard any secular music outside of. Like, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I'm would, sorry. I would hear the, all of my the satanic hotbed that is Gloria Estefan. No, seriously. The only secular music I was familiar with is the pop music we would hear at Pizza Hut, mm-hmm. and the heavy metal music we would hear at Godfather's Pizza. Literally, that was my experience of secular music that wasn't classical. Both involved pizza. And yeah, the, literally that was it. For pizza restaurants were my saving grace. So I went to her house. She puts on Gloria Estefan. And she's like, okay, we're going to watch a movie. And she puts in this movie. And the little rating thing comes up. It's PG-13. I'm like, oh, no. Amber, you know I'm not allowed to watch this. And she goes, oops. And it was Millennium with Chris Christopherson and Cheryl Ladd. <laughs> from 1985 or whatever and it's a time travel movie and Chris Christopherson is a guy who explores plane crashes and tries to you know figure out what happened and Cheryl Ladd is a woman from the future dystopia awfulness the world is ending and they're trying to collect people from the past who are still fertile to seed in this like future place that they're going after the world ends and it was so terrible but it's terrible in a way that was amazing like it's you know there's there's really a spectrum. It's so bad it's amazing. That is Millennium. And I tell everybody watch this movie. It's like you don't understand. This was my first PG thirteen movie ever. And honestly, why it's PG thirteen? I have no idea because there's nothing terrible in it at all. Adult situations, I guess. Because <laughs> yeah, probably like they there's an in, there's a scene that intimates that they have sex. Okay, <laughs> but it's time travel, and I was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. Even though it's just, a, it's a shit movie. It's so bad. But it's bad in a way that's glorious. Literally, they go into the light at the end. That's that's the ending. They go into the light. Uh, spoiler for Millennium. Set, <laughs> yeah, spoiler alert. And it set my brain on fire in a really weird way because it made me, A, it, made, it sort of reinforced this idea of, you know, all these things that people are telling me are bad are really not bad. But also awakened this deep love of sci-fi and time travel stories in my mind in a way that would continue for the rest of my life. So bless you, Chris Christopherson and Cheryl Ladd for that, because, yeah. No, I'm with you there. Uh, there was a couple of really terrible Piers Anthony sci-fi slash fantasy books that involved theoretical time travel and literal time travel that I recall reading in the backseats of cars. And really, there were nothing redeeming about those books, except for the fact that there were situations where one character could theoretically do a short time loop and see what happened if he did something differently. And yeah, there's that, that feeling oh. where it's like you have as many tries as you want and you get to watch how each plays out and then come back and try again until you got the right one. And I was just like... Yeah, see, I would have been all yeah. into that. It's, and again, like, like the, it's the same feeling I got from that one episode of Buffy with the little tiny Groundhog Day loop. And it's like, yes. yeah, that idea of causality and changing of things through time travel 
it has that that weird kind of excitement to it. I have to say, it's like the thing that, as far as story themes go, it's the thing I'm most obsessed with. And I always make this joke, like, I need to find local friends that will come get drunk with me and talk about robots and time travel. (laughs) Because it seems like whenever I drink, that's all I want to talk about. I want to talk about robots and time travel. (laughs) Like all these, there's so many different, you know, theories of time travel and causality and different ways you could do it and why future time travel doesn't work, but past time travel. And I just... I could go on for literally hours if I had the right drink and the right audience about just time travel. And it's all due to Amber Kennedy, bless you, for sneaking that PG-13 movie in and making it happen for me. All right. Well, I think that's a lovely place to end it. So if people wanted to come and talk to you about robots and time travel, where would they find you? So I am on Twitter at... (laughs) So my (laughs) the handle that I picked is Clutter and Kindle, but Twitter has a character limitation so it's actually clutter in kindle and yeah you can tweet me there well excellent i will be sure to do so as i also have many opinions about robots and time travel excellent this has been great melissa thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for having me it's been a pleasure to Melissa Bright for her time. For Melissa's signature cocktail, there was a lot of back-and-forth conversation, including things like how fake banana doesn't taste like real banana, and how some terrible, terrible bars use pre-made store-bought sour mix in their margaritas, which is anathema to me. I couldn't even comprehend it. But in the end, I came up with something completely outside of our conversations that I think has fit the bill. And so I present The Canner's Breakfast. In a shaker without ice, add one bar spoon of thin-cut marmalade. Add two ounces of bourbon and stir until the marmalade is completely dissolved. Add ice, half an ounce of sweet vermouth, and a quarter ounce of amaretto. Shake vigorously and strain into a pre-chilled cocktail glass. Finish with a dash of orange bitters and a cherry. This drink prowls the streets of Manhattan with cat-like tread, but always knows the neighborhood. Enjoy! Tending to be friends The Math of You is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathofyou at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themathofyou, and you can follow my wacky adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash 
and pitch in as little as a dollar a month, or really as much as you want. You can go $50, you can go $100, you could even go $1,000. That would make me really happy. You get early access to episodes, special podcast messages, and I would really, really appreciate it. If you'd like to support in a non-monetary way, you can head on over to iTunes for the country of your choice and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a nice review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Just go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find the Spotify playlist that I update each and every week with every song I've used right back to episode one, including this one. It's I Want to Get Better by Bleachers. It's one of my very favorites, and I was really happy when Melissa suggested I use it as her outro. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Andrew Isla. And strap in, folks, because we're going to be talking about the great, the powerful, and extremely weird Space Ghost Coast to Coast. But until then, I think I'll play us out with the extremely secular sounds of Gloria Estefan and the Miami Sound Machine. Join me, won't you? Shake your body, baby, do that conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. Come on, shake your body, baby, do that conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. You're going to hear I'm a little bit croaky because uh, I had a friend's farewell on Thursday night, and it was one of those things where I didn't drink a lot, but it was a very boisterous evening, and the beer was very strong, and we had enough of it before we got food that I was, like, a wreck yesterday, like, Mm -hmm. comically hungover, and, like, that kind of hungover where you're angry because you didn't drink that much, and there have been other times where you've had bigger nights and you felt fine. But it's just like I'm sitting there in the morning, like with a blanket wrapped around my shoulders, just kind of staring into the middle distance. I'm just like, I'm so mad about this. Yeah. Like, like I had some like leftover. Like I made a chicken, a poached chicken salad the night before, and then I went to try to have some of the leftovers. I took one bite and like my body rejected it, and I'm just like, I'm gonna have Aww. like oven French fries for lunch. Oh no. <laughs> I'm like, that's it. No, oh, you can't I hear be a cat. Cat. I hear a cat. Okay, I'm going to warn you. I have four cats, and at least two of them love to be on my desk. So at some point, <laughs> you're going to hear a meow or two. Because, yeah, she doesn't understand. Like, there's no room for you here. But I did grab a really nice bottle of wine on the way home, too. So Anything good? It is a dry rosé from Provence, I think. Mm, Yeah, it's quite nice. I was going to say, I'm I'm glad you you said it was a rosé because I have a lot of trouble with wines in the States because in Australia, everything is listed by varietal, always. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's part of the the thing that the Australian wineries broke away from the French style. So they were like, oh, it's, you know, it's a a licensed appellation to say it's a Beaujolais. So it's like, fine, we're just going to call it a Shiraz and you can deal with it. You know, that kind of stuff. And so now someone will be like, oh, yes, I had, you know, I had a Chateau Neuf de Puff. I'm like, cool, what's in it? I don't I don't know what Yeah, it is. this is like, this is like 90-something percent Grenache Noir. Ooh, nice. If that helps. Yeah, I like I, I'm a big fan of Grenache, but I'd never had it in sort of rosé format. And so that sounded exciting. I'm a big fan of, and this is 
It's not snobbery, just that I like things that are going to be, like, have an exclamation point on the sentence. So I like, for example, like stuff like Grenache, which is normally like an addition grape. Like you have that a little bit tucked into a Shiraz or something. Mm-hmm. Or like a straight Petit Verdot or a straight Malbec or something. Where it's yeah. just like, it may be terrible or it may be amazing, but it's not going to be subtle. <laughs> and yeah. It's not, yeah, it's like you're going to have opinions about it one way or the other. I go two ways. Either I buy something that I know I'm going to like, like pretty much any French wider rosé, I generally like because they're on the drier side. And lately, I've been in this really dry wine kick. Or I go for the most exciting label. Oh, I, I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't really care what's in it. As long as the label is interesting, I will probably buy it. I don't really care, you know, if it's $3 or 20 I'm a sucker for a good label. There's a couple of Australian companies, uh, one called Venacious, and the other's called Wine by Some Young Punks. <laughs> and they all have amazing, like, graphic novel slash painted labels and I've never been disappointed by one of their wines despite the fact I'm actually just gonna drop a link in the chat hang on luckily they're getting a lot more distribution so they're a bit more affordable I mean they had uh, a Tempranillo called the Squid's Fist and I'm like I I can't ignore that you know yeah All Monsters Attack or like Passion Had Red Lips and stuff like that I'm like that's cool give me that yes any no you can't be Anything with either like a really fun picture or a crazy name. And that's that goes for beer as well. Any kind of, you know, a lot of these smaller breweries have just the craziest names. I'm like, I have no idea what this is going to taste like. It's some, you know, weird thing that I've never heard of before. But mm-hmm. it's got a crazy picture on it. I'm going to buy it and take a picture of it and laugh over it. And even if it's terrible, then I had a laugh. So, oh, this looks exactly. like a lot of fun. Oh yeah, they're, they're, it's, and the thing is, they're all good wines, which I think is the is the key. It's not just oh hey, it's something interesting. Like I've had the Serenia, I've had the Salome, the Red Right Hand, Snake Charmer, all those ones, and they're all just good wine. And I'll, I'll send you the other one, which has the Squid's Fist and Double Love Trouble and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, I think I mean I think that's the key. Is that you know the fun label will get me in one time, but if it's good wine, that's what gets me going back. Yeah, there's a brewery called the Orkney Brewery, which is in the north of Scotland on you know one of those islands where the vikings settled it and never went away and so all their stuff is like viking themed and has like dragons and dwarves and whatever else on the label and they have a really cool like sort of intertwined ravens logo on the cap and i'm just like yes scott scott's viking beer i am in for this oh nice oh this looks fun i like the way this website is set up the blame the suspects the evidence and payoff yeah it's yeah, good i'm i'm hooked and what i found recently is that there's a, a movie theater that i go to sometimes at the entertainment quarter what used to be known as fox studios and they have the big blockbuster like imax cinema but then they also have one around the corner which is referred to as the the cinema paris which is the smaller theater uh, it was like the original building before they expanded and They'll like show like a little more art house or the occasion show old movies, but it's the kind of place where you can go in and order wine. And they actually now have all Venetian wines. And they'll do something where I learned when I went to see Ant Man, which is where you go. Uh, the, I'll, I'll have a, a glass of the of the you know the red right hand, and they go, okay, cool. Do you want a regular or a large? And I went, um, well, it's it's a wine glass, guy. Uh, I don't <laughs> I don't really know what you mean. And turns out that when you ask for a large wine at this theater, instead of just giving you a standard pour, they fill up the glass until the top of the glass. Oh my god! Like all the way, and you've got like maybe like half an inch from the top of the glass. And nice. so I went, uh, I don't know, two larges. And my girlfriend was driving at the time, and so she got about halfway through, and she's like, "You're gonna have to finish this." And so I, oh, I can hear it. I can hear yep. it. <laughs> So, yeah, basically, I enjoyed Ant-Man immensely. 
because I had uh, a glass and a half of giant glasses of wine in me, which I think is the right way to see that movie. Yes. My favorite beer name, speaking of fun labels and fun names, a local brewery in Houston called Carbock, and they make their holiday ale is called You'll Shoot Your Eye Out. <laughs> and it's since got the lamp, the leg lamp on the can. <laughs> and even though like The Christmas Story was never one of our holiday movies growing up, I love the pun so much that I always had to buy it when it came out just just for that. And, you know, it's a, it's a Christmas mail. OK, that's fine. But honestly, I was buying it for the name. Absolutely. And I would tell everybody, you'll shoot your eye out. You have to go get this beer just because of the name. <laughs> there was one that was the Monty Python Holy Ale. And they had just oh. written Grail and crossed out the GR. That's perfect. And, and they said it was tempered over the fires of burning witches. And... <laughs> And I had a, ter- a, a terrible situation where it's like I'd always seen it, but it was always expensive because it was like, you know, it's a short run thing. And I'm like, I'm not sure I want to buy it just for the joke. We'll see. And then one day I was in my local uh, bottle shop and they had a, a sign where it was marked down to $3 for a half liter bottle. And Ooh. I went, oh, oh, wow, that's cheap. And I, so I, I grabbed two and went to the, the front counter and the guy looked at it and he looked at me and he said, look, I've got 17 of those left. And it expires in two weeks, so I can't legally sell it after that. If you take them all off my hands, I'll give it to you for a dollar a bottle. <gasps> uh, and I went, yes, yes, I will do that. Do you have a box? The only problem was I didn't have a car. And oh. so I'm then carrying 17 half-liter bottles <laughs> in a box that was not made for that bottle shape and trying to like walk down the street in Newtown and not collect every person coming the other way. And like, and then I realized, like, even, like, halfway home, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to fit all this in my fridge. And it was refrigerated at the shop. So if I let it go to room temperature, it'll go off. So I called one of my friends halfway home, and I'm like, Craig, would you be able to take nine bottles of Monty Python beer off my hands? He's like, I'll be over in 20 minutes. <laughs> it's like, that's a good friend to have. <laughs> I've made that mistake with farmer's market type stuff where, you know, I'll go and they'll have, you know, flats of what they call seconds where it's fruit that's maybe not you know really super pretty but it's really great for canning and i'll take all three cartons and then i realize i don't have any place to put this i'm gonna have to do something with it right now it's like who wants pies who wants tarts no it's 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 even worse because it's more like i had bought this with the intent of canning it or making applesauce or you know something like that that's sort of time intensive and then I realized I've literally just committed my entire week into doing this. <laughs> well, okay. I mean, it's always worth it, but, you know. The, the real treasure is the applesauce you make at the end of the weekend. Absolutely. Or the friends you found along the way. Yes. Or, or in my case, you know, some friend said, I have a tree full of Meyer lemons that are going to go to waste. Do you want some? And I'll come back with three bags. And then what that means is that I'll end up with lemon curd and candied lemon peel and you know, jarred lemon juice that will last me for months. And then, you know, come summer, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I spent that whole weekend processing lemons. <laughs> My friend Olivia did that with, but she made lemoncello. Mm. It was one of those situations where she came back with like four net bags of lemons and was just like, all right, I'm having everyone over. I'm sending, she sent her partner, Terrence, to go and buy like just grain spirits. Mm. And we're all going to sit and have a, a lemon peeling and squeezing party. And everyone's hands are going to smell amazing at the end of this. Yes. And, you know, limoncello is so easy to make. I don't really understand why everybody doesn't make it. It's And I read once, it's, I, this was years ago, so the stats may be different now, but I read once that 
Limoncello accounts for approximately 30% of the alcohol consumption in Italy because oh, wow. everybody just makes their own because it's so easy. And it's, you know, it's just really like ubiquitous drink that everybody has on hand, all, you know, whether you're a person or you have a restaurant, everybody's got their own like house-made limoncello. And I understand why, because it's literally just grain spirits, lemon peel, and sugar. And you just set it for however long until it's ready. It's, it's one of those situations, like, I went to a, because I occasionally go to a rum club, which is a, an invite-only thing that I got through a friend, where they'll, like, distributors will bring out rum from a certain country, and you get a little PowerPoint presentation, and, and then you get, like, you know, between four and six glasses of different aged rums and on a Monday night, which is great. But in the last one, they were talking about Gosling's rum, and that on the island where they were making it at the time, they didn't have a glassworks. Like, they had trade, and they, and they could make stuff, but glass was prohibitively expensive. So what they would do is they'd wait for the English garrison to throw out all the champagne bottles. Uh. And they would go and scavenge in the dump and take all the champagne bottles and rinse them out and, like, sterilize them and then put the rum in there and they would seal it with black wax, which is why it became known as black seal rum. Uh. And, and now the rum has an actual, like, animal seal on the label because some marketing person didn't get the story. I always wondered about that. Yeah, it's so, so random, like, what do seals have to do with rum? Yeah, and I mean, sure, there are seals in the Bahamas, but it's just like, no, it's because they had to seal it with wax because they were all secondhand bottles. Oh, thus starting two glorious traditions. One, sealing liquor with wax, which is always really exciting. Like, you know, you get the Maker's Mark mm -hmm. bottles with the wax. Yeah. And two, homebrewers scavenging beer bottles from wherever they can find them <laughs> because nobody wants to just buy a whole bunch of beer and drink it just so you can have the beer bottles. Yeah, and it's like you, you open a bottle with a, a bottle opener and it bends the cap and someone's like, hey, 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 put that back. Yes, yes. <laughs> Be careful yes. with that.